All right, starting point today, and now, if, if we're lucky, we're going to get slides today. The computer has given us a lot of problems. They are in the app, right? Yes. So if they're not on the screen, if we can't follow along that way, they are in the app. If you have the app, if you don't, there's information right in front of you how to get it. Here's just kind of a starting point for today. Eat and drink, tomorrow we die. Death is a reality we all face. How we live is a choice we all get to make. Do we see death as a part of God's plan and grace is the way that we're all to live or do we take this life for granted and waste it on things that cannot last? So in the last two, three weeks, I've lost three people somewhat close to me. One was a family member of, of people I'm very close to. Uh, one was my wife's uh, stepmom. One was a good friend from a church that Vinny and I used to pastor up in the high desert. And so in a, in a span of about a week and a half, lost three people roughly in the last three weeks. And what that causes us to do is just really think of our own mortality. No matter what happens when someone around you dies, whether they're close to you or not, when it's, when it's significant enough to kind of ripple out to you, we remember our mortality, remember we're going to die one day. Like that's a reality that none of us will escape. Fair? Is that kind of a fair idea? And so we respond to those, right? I, I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm not making that up. We're all going to die, right? Yeah, for sure. Good. Some of you still aren't answering, so I don't know what else I have to say. <laughs> Do you question that? I guess that's what I should ask. Maybe is there another way out that I don't know about? All right. So this idea of our own mortality, it, cause, or it tends to cause one of two things in us. Either it, it sets our eyes on the immediate, on the today, and we decide that we're going to live today like there may not be a tomorrow. We're going to do anything we want to do. We're going to have anything we want to have. We're going to live any way we desire to live. Like the verse says, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Or does it cause us to push past tomorrow and look to eternity? Does it cause us to think of things in light of the fact that death is not the last thing? And, sh and it should, I think, cause us to look into eternity. So I just want to posit this up front. God has called us to live and enjoy this life. But he has called us to glorify him no matter what it takes. So if that is fun at the moment, great. Like I enjoy worshiping. I enjoy being in church. I enjoy being with you. I enjoyed our, our men's event last weekend. I enjoy these things. We get to enjoy them together. I like coming to work each day. Our staff, for the most part, they're all right, you know? <laughs> we have fun. That little video that we uh, showed last week and we put out on social media, we'll show again next week. We really, I mean, consider this is part of my job. We went down, right? We went down to the beach and we videoed some stuff. And, and I mean, like, it's not a terrible job, right? It could be worse. So I love what we do. And I love being able to share God's word with you. This is something I'm passionate about. This gets me up out of bed. I would do this for free if I could. When I retire, I hope to never stop doing this. Hope to just be able to do it for free for as long as God will allow. But when things aren't right, or when things aren't right in the church, when things aren't right in my life, God calls us to something different. Isaiah's in that moment with, and when I say God's people, this is a nation of people in Jerusalem and Judah and Israel that were followers of God at one point. 
So there's a lot of corollary here in America, right? This is a nation founded on faith. Not perfect, just as they weren't perfect, but a nation that was biased toward faith. That some of the things that people that founded our country were fleeing was oppression of religion. That was a piece of the puzzle. It was founded with the Bible in mind. The first textbook in America, look this up, is the Bible. Just teach people how to read in the King James Bible. However that worked, I don't know. It's hard, hard enough for us to read today. Yes, we're a flawed country, but we did have a heart for God at one point. And not everything that was flawed encompasses every person. A big, huge piece of the movement that got us out of slavery was the church. Granted, there were Christians that were pro-slavery too. So again, flawed. But many, many pastors and many, many Christians drove us out of the biggest black eye, if you will, pardon the pun, but the, the biggest mistake our nation's ever made. It's not a mistake, it's a failure. So our nation's not perfect, but it does have a history of faith. Israel and Judah, not perfect. They struggled through slavery, used to extort their own people. They had a, a very tiered system of a monarchy and peasants and everything, like, flawed. But at one point, they had a commitment to faith. And it's that piece that I think we can resonate here in this country. We can resonate with that piece of it. Flawed as our histories may be, there is a piece of the puzzle that is it's centered on faith. So Isaiah chapter 22, let's go back to verse 1 and let's work our way through it. The oracle concerning the valley of vision, which is another name for Jerusalem. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? You're slain or not slain with a sword or dead in battle. So here's the starting point. God is speaking through a man named Isaiah. Isaiah is what they call a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God with God's authority, God's word to God's people. That is what Isaiah is. Prophecy is not always future telling, but sometimes is. Most of the future telling pieces either happen very quickly after, or they happen then, and they also have larger implications like Jesus, which we'll see at the end of this. And so prophecy, when we hear that, we always think of future telling, but most of prophecy is just speaking truth to God's people, calling them out of the sin that they're in. And so this is a, this is a present tense statement by Isaiah. Some of it will become future. Some of it will become messianic. We'll unpack that when we get there. But this is a present time statement that says, why, what do you mean, why are you guys partying? So they would go up on the top of their roofs, on top of their houses, don't think roof like we do, just think they built this thing that was on top of their homes that they lived, and they did all kinds of, and they partied up there, and this city is now celebrating, and the thing that they're celebrating is that Assyria has not completely taken them out. That Assyria is the nation that is around there, and they're devastating the other nations, and they're persecuting God's people, but... What's taking place is they're celebrating that they haven't been completely destroyed. So here's what God says. Verse 3. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. So here's what God says. Now, what exactly is it you're celebrating? Like your leaders bailed on you. Your leaders left 
and they ran. They ran with no threat in front of them, and yet you're sitting here celebrating like you beat somebody in battle. What you're celebrating is that this nation decided to go around you for whatever reason. But they're doing this in the context of God having told them already, I'm going to destroy you for your disobedience. So this is another time, another way, another place where God is calling out to his people. And you understand that Isaiah is a contemporary of Jeremiah, who Jeremiah is saying many of the same things to the people. And God is speaking through many people to these nations, to the the nation that's been divided into Israel and Judah, who are supposed to be the people of God, who are supposed to be faithful followers of God. And he's saying, what exactly is it you're celebrating? I'm still going to judge you for your sin. And just because they passed by you, you're acting like you beat them somehow. Like what exactly is it that you see as your accomplishment here? Verse four, this is Isaiah speaking. He says, therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Isaiah is weeping for God's people. Now, we've seen Isaiah throughout. This is 22 chapters in, so we're literally, today is a third of the way through the books. And so as we're, as we're working our way through this, as God speaks out judgment on people, oftentimes we'll cut to Isaiah just saying something personally. And a lot of times he is weeping and mourning for the people, sometimes for people outside the people of God and sometimes for people inside the faith. And I think that if, if, if God were to give us eyes in which we could see like God sees, I, I think there'd be two significant changes. I think, one, we would, we would see people through a loving lens that is very different. Fair? That we would, we would not look at people and see maybe their flaws or their personalities. or We'd see, we'd see people that God created. Maybe, and, maybe the, and I believe that would cause us to love people uniquely and differently. The second thing I think it would cause us to do is we would see the ugliness and the devastation of sin. The things that we downplay and take very lightly today, I think we would see them as huge and ugly and things that that would cause us to grieve deeply. And I think in some way, though Isaiah doesn't say this, I think in some way, Isaiah, because God is using him and God is speaking through him and he's giving him very vivid visions and prophecies, He's giving him very detailed things to say to different people groups, be it Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or Jerusalem or Judah, Israel, whatever. He is giving him very detailed descriptions of what he's going to do. And I think Isaiah just gets a unique look at the world. And he says this, he says, look away from me, I weep, or let me weep bitter tears. Don't comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So a heart of mourning. God's people mourn more than, should, I'm sorry, that's my typo. God's people should mourn more than we do. We should enjoy life that God has given us, but we should also mourn sinfulness and ungodliness. What we see in Isaiah is him mourning the people, mourning the sin of the people, mourning the distance of the people from their God. And I think Isaiah knows what's coming as God has spoken through him. And I think that if we, if we were to take these words seriously, if we were really to take scripture for what it says to us, I think that there would be a level of grieving and mourning. First, I hope for our own sin, for our own failures, 
but also the failure of the church or the community or the country or whatever, however we would see that. The failures in people, sometimes as a pastor, I, I sit with people who are doing things that are just destroying their lives, right? Whether it be addictions or uh, just wrong relationships or whatever it might be, and I, and I sit from the outside and I get to look and just watch as they're, as they're willingly doing things that are destroying their wives or their husbands or their kids or their own lives or relationships or whatever it is. And there's those times where you sit back and you grieve for them. You mourn for them. Like, and in fact, I think Pastor Vinny and I, I use this language with him a lot. I, sometimes it just feels like I want God's best for them worse than they want it for them. And all you're left with is a sense of grieving for them because they just don't want that. And you see like there's a way out and you see that like there's a better life. You get to see these things and, and you can share that with them, but it's up to them to live that out. I want to read verse five to you again. Here's what Isaiah says. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountain. So I want you to hear this. The Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. Battering down the walls and shouting to the mountain. So the Lord God of hosts is another way, another way of saying the Lord, the God of armies. He's speaking here to a, a being not only sovereignly controlling all the human armies around them, as he does because he's God, but also a spiritual army, an arm, an angelic army, if you will. That, there is, that this God is the God of much more than we can fathom. And at this moment, that's what Isaiah is saying to them. He says, so the Lord God of hosts, and then he begins to predict their end again, has a day of tumult, trampling, and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of the walls and a shouting to the mountains. And so here's what he's saying. Listen, I know you think you've escaped it because Assyria went around you. I know you think you got away with it and you're celebrating and partying and doing your thing now, but I'm telling you the day is coming when you will be destroyed and judged for your sin. So again, Isaiah prophesies over them. I want to put it in modern day terms. So a guarantee of death. Consider this. Compare God's prophecy to destroy Jerusalem to knowing that one day we will all physically die. Should we act like Jerusalem celebrating that because it hasn't happened today, it never will? Or should we live knowing that one day we will all die? Like if eternity is after this, if we believe what we say, if eternity is forever, and that life outside of Christ ends in eternity separated from God, separated from his goodness, and if we believe that in Christ we have found grace, then how do we live tomorrow and the next day? Do we, do we live that way saying, oh, we might not make it through another day, so I'm going to have whatever that is that God has called me not to have, but I want anyhow, I'm going to do that anyways. Do we live for this moment and kind of just throw our hands up at eternity or do we drill down now on what God calls us to, living with eternity in mind? Verse 6, And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valley were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. Let's just pause there for a minute. So there's obviously some more imagery. Right? God is saying, 
I'm going to judge you for your sin. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to raise up an army that's going to come in and destroy you. Now, this isn't the first time God has said this, and he said, listen, I am being patient, I am being loving, I am waiting for anyone who would desire to return to me. I have a time, a day, he keeps saying, I have a day at hand when I will destroy you. And so the people who got are hearing this, and then the Assyrian army, who they thought would be the problem, go around them. And so they start celebrating, and the only thing you can read into this is that what, God was wrong? Or God was making it all up? Or God wasn't serious about it. And so they begin to celebrate. And Isaiah says, I don't know why you're celebrating. It's still coming. All you have here is an opportunity to return and an opportunity to change. Then he says this. He has taken away the covering of Judah. There's an image all throughout the Old Testament, a little bit in the New Testament. It's one that I'm fond of. And it just, for me, it makes sense. When God's people are placing themselves in a posture to receive from God, whether that be in the way they live and the things that they do or don't do, whatever it is, when God's people are living in the way they're designed to live, it's like God's hand of blessing is right there on them, right? And with his hand there, people can't come in and destroy them. With his hand there, it seems like everything that they, they do, that it, it prospers, and the rain falls and the crops grow. And and God says, listen, I will keep my hand on you. My desire is to keep my blessing poured out on you. And so we get this image of God's hand on them. But then as they begin to sin and rebel and forget where their blessing comes from, God warns them. God calls out through many prophets, through many leaders, through many words and many prophecies and many visions and many judgments. He does these things with really a patient and grace-filled and merciful heart. But his warning then says this, if you don't return to me, I'm just going to slowly lift my hand off you. And as I lift my hand off you, the nations that already want to destroy you, they will. And I'll cause them to anyhow, because that's what you have coming. But the difference is, what do you, how do you want to live in response to that? Do you want to live in ways and, and repentance and returning where God's hand remains? Or do you want to live in such a way where God just lifts his, head, his hand and judgment enters in? So listen to this, verse 8, we'll start there again. He has taken away the covering of Judah. That's what he's talking about. Just imagine this image as if this, this hand of God comes off the people. He says, he has taken away the covering of Judah. And that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many, you collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Here's what Isaiah says to them. When God lifted his hand off of you, here's what you did. You began to go to the forest and grab as many arrows and build spears and arrows and bows and everything you could. You fortified yourself with weapons. He says, the breaches of the city of David, you saw all the gaps in the city. He said, he said in fact, this, you, they went, you went so far as to tear down your own homes to, to fill in the breaches. And then you started diverting water into the center of the city so that water would pool inside. And that's because 
When you would go to war, sometimes invading armies, they would divert water around you, just really kind of starving you out and, and, and causing a drought inside your city. With no water, you don't live. And so they would do this to cause the water to go around. So they're pooling water. They're getting ready. And it says they counted the houses in Jerusalem. They're numbering their armies. They're numbering their soldiers. They're numbering their might. He says, but you did not look to him who did it or see him, meaning God, who planned it long ago. Here's your response to God saying, I'm going to take my hand off you and I'm going to judge you. You decide to prepare for war. So you do what you can with your hands, but you don't look to the very God who says it will happen. How many times do we do that? In, in big ways, maybe nationally, but I'm just really in smaller ways in our own hearts, in our own homes. How many times do we just not listen? It's like that little kid with his hands over his ears and just, I'm not listening. And I'm just going to do what I want to do and I'm going to go this way. Right? We're all guilty of that. So let me just say this. If you're here, if you're a guest here today, or if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're really just kind of figuring out who we are as a church, we don't think we have it together. In fact, I will tell you this. We are sure we do not. Okay, starting with me, on down, totally screwed up. Just throwing that out there. So you're looking for the perfect church? We're not it. You find a perfect church, they won't let you in anyhow, so it's okay, right? <laughs> well, you'd mess it up. I mean, let's just be honest, right? All right. So they look to do what they can, not listening to God. They're, really, it reads as if they're little kids with their fingers in their ears. Like, we're just going to go do what we want. They're celebrating that an army went around them, not that they beat them in battle. Now they're gearing up for battle instead of listening to God. Verse 12, it says, in that day. And so when it says that day, it's, it's speaking of a specific day of judgment. This is true throughout Scripture here and, and, and some stuff in the New Testament, Old Testament. All, there's a day that God has assigned for this to happen. And yes, that looks forward to a day where this life, this human existence stops and changes. And we will all stand before Jesus. And that we will all stand judged on the merit of whether or not we were in Christ or not. Yes, it speaks to that, but he's saying there's actually a day coming when to wipe out your nation. So he says, in that day, verse 12, the Lord God of hosts, right, the God of armies, listen how he changes that emphasis on who God is, called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. No, that is not why I cut my hair this week. Just throwing that out there. All right. Here's what God says. Here's what you should be doing. Instead of gearing up for war, what they would do when they would fast and they would mourn and they would, they would put on like sackcloth or like just these garments that were just pretty hideous and, and uncomfortable. And they would put ash on themselves and they would, you know, hair and beards and stuff were a big thing. They would shave all that off and they would fast and pray. If you're unfamiliar with fasting, fasting is denying yourself something. It's typically food, not always food. But it is typically food, denying yourself something physical that you can press into something spiritual. So if you are denying yourself food, you are then replacing that time in prayer. So it's, it's kind of a, it doesn't have to be a one for one, but you get the idea. And so God says this, instead of gearing up for army, here's what you should be doing. You should be weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. You should be you should be coming to God on bended knees, sobbing about how wrong you've been, 
and how wrong you're being, and instead you're gearing up for battle. Fasting, is, as I said, is a practice of denying yourself and pressing into God, and it's, it's for a purpose of renewed strength and relationship from God. Uh, Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, then the, then the disciples of John, or Matthew writes this, then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so it's kind of a weird answer, kind of given in a New Testament context that most of us who are, you know, didn't live then, aren't Jewish, don't understand that context. We read back and we look at this isolated statement, it doesn't always make sense. But if you pair that up with Isaiah and what's going on, here's what he's saying. God has lifted his hand off the people. God's presence is distant now. God is not with his people in this moment. And so the, the right thing to do is to deny themselves, not just trust in themselves, but to deny themselves, mourn, weep, fast, pray, and, and just beg God to return to them. Fast forward to the New Testament. John the Baptist has disciples. He's been out in the wilderness baptizing people in, in a, a baptism of repentance. The Pharisees are kind of the leading religious sect of the day. They have disciples. All of them practiced fasting. So all of them fasted certain days of the week, certain times of the year. They would go without food, a series of meals for a series of time. They would do that. And then they said, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And he says this. He says, because I'm here with them. My presence is with them right now. What need for fasting do they have? When I go away, then there will be a time and they will fast as well. And, and fasting is a spiritual practice that the church is called to today. It's not one that's talked about a lot. I don't think it's one that's practiced a ton in the church today. It clearly isn't enough. And again, that's why we... That's why we look back at Isaiah and the people of God then and just recognize we have a lot in common with these people. That we identify as a people of God, but we really lack in our practice of worship. That today the modern church has become something you know, not something you do. And the people of God have always been a people who do as well. Who they are, what they do, and what they know. And so this is a gap, this is a, this is a hole in our game as well. So fasting and mourning. After that, yep, that's the one. Nope, go back. Is this a test? Yeah. All right. <laughs> fasting is all about denying physical things that we trust in to live. For example, food. It's a practice of trusting God over everything else. Again, if you're not one, like me, to miss a meal, you want to go without eating for a day or two or three or 40, which I've never done, by the way. But if you're to practice fasting like that, you are trusting in God to sustain you, especially as you start. Now, we all know you can miss a meal, but I start getting hungry and angry and grumpy, and it's not pretty. But it's denying ourselves something and trusting in God, right, that he will provide for us. When we find ourselves, sorry, lots of typos this morning. When we find ourselves far from God, he often calls us to deny ourselves and mourn for repentance of sin. So that's what's going on here. This is a modern day practice that is lacking in the church. And this is what's going on 27, 2800 years ago in Jerusalem as well. 
is they're pressing into this, and God is saying, listen, you ought to be, you ought to be living as if I lifted my hand off you, and instead you're gearing up for war like I'm right there among you. You ought to be fasting and praying for my return, and no, instead, you're eating and drinking. And he'll go on to that in a minute. First Peter 3 says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We find that place where we have, we have caused ourselves to be away from God. Just, and again, I, and this is a little cliche, a little simple, but we, we all know who moved, right? It wasn't him. It's us. We're the ones that walked away. We're the ones that chose to live apart from him. Then the return for followers of Jesus is often through fasting and prayer and always through repentance. And words like 1 Peter are comforting to know that when we return, he is faithful. He turns and his desire is just to place his hand right back on us. Right? That we would live under that blessing. That's what his desire is. He lifts it so that we might know what we're doing is wrong and return. Verse 13, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So instead of all that, so instead of fasting, mourning, weeping, repenting, returning, instead of all that, you're up on the rooftops partying, you're getting drunk, you're slaughtering animals and barbecuing, you're doing all this, you're celebrating instead of mourning and returning. It's the opposite response of what God is calling them to. Verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So there is a, now a sin here, and God makes a statement. I don't think it's as clear in English as it was when they heard it or when Isaiah said it. Here's what he's saying. I will not forgive this sin of yours till you die. Like, you're going to live however you're going to live. I will not forgive this sin of yours. A lot of people have talked about, because in the New Testament, there's two places where it talks about an unpardonable sin, and there's lots of ideas about that. It's, it's super simple. Here's what's going on here, then we'll tie it, we'll fast forward to the New Testament. God has provided to them a means of grace. God has provided to his people a way to return, and they're rejecting it. So he says, fine, then I won't forgive you. Fast forward to the New Testament where people are critiquing Jesus and saying he has a demon and all kinds of things, and he says that that is, that is the place where you cannot be forgiven. When God provides a means of grace, when, when God provides Christ to us, his son, God in the flesh, to live the life that we've been called to live and fail, and not even fail, but choose not to. And then when he will go on to suffer and die in our place, what we deserve, and he does not, but he'll do it for us, somehow God, who created humanity, will die on a cross. God says, listen, when I have provided this grace to you, here's what I will not forgive from you. I will not forgive you if you reject it. So if you push Christ away, if you say, I don't need Jesus, I'm going to get there on my own merit, I'm a good person, I'm going to do this, all paths lead to heaven, anything else, you reject my grace, I will reject you. 
And you, you can not like that I said it, but you can, you can argue with him. They're rejecting the means of grace that he has provided to them. They're not mourning. They're not repenting. They're not returning. They're not weeping. They're not sorry. And so they're in no need of grace to return to faith. And so he says, fine, live the way you want to live, and I will just leave you unforgiven. So words I never want to hear. But that I never want to live in such a way that I have rejected all the grace of God. Right? And I'm not making some sweeping theological statement about those who are believers or not believers in faith and losing. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when it all boils down, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want us to be those people. I want us to be the people who go, you're right, we're wrong, we felt it, you lifted your hand off, this is terrible, we want back in. Like quick, fast, and in a hurry, I want to be back under your hand, right there where it's safe and warm. Not the people to say, you know what, lift your hand. It's good, man, I've been working out, I think I can handle this. <laughs> right? Their unforgivable sin. Here's a slide for you. God says through Isaiah that the sin of Judah... Will pay, they will be paid for in their death is their rejection of his grace. Today we're faced with the same sin that cannot be forgiven, the rejection of God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. So now to emphasize this, here's what Isaiah is going to do. God through Isaiah is going to tell the tale of two different men. Here's what he says, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you done here? What, what have you to do here, and whom have you here? that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. So this is a little confusing. It's a little different than our day. So here's the deal. Shebna is, a, is a, an official in the palace, right? So he's a person of privilege who lives in, in, a, in a lot of means. And what he's been doing, rather than using his place to lead people to God, he's just been gaining and gaining from his position, so much so that he has bought an expensive place where he is going to go die. Now, there's some irony here. So instead of leading people towards God, you're going to go find a home for your body when you die so that you can face God and go, oops. Right? He's placing all his money or you know, placing all his bet on this life. So much so that when he is bodied, he wants it to be in this nice place. So here's, uh, here's another slide for you. A warning to those to whom God is blessed. Shebna is a man of great privilege who ought to be leading others toward God, but instead is focused on what he can gain in this life. How often do we get caught up in the gain of this world and lose sight of eternity? How often do we get caught up in this world, what we can gain in this world, and lose sight of what matters most? Right? Whether it's even noble things. Man, we really want our kids to go to a good college, and we can't afford that good college. So we're going to make sure they all get sports scholarships, right? And those sports games are going to take them out of church for months on end. Are we sure that it's really worth it? Are we sure we're willing to sacrifice something that's eternal, something that's, that's God, something that's forever, on the idea that they really need to go to XYZ college over here? And I know there's other ways, and you can work around that, but as a pastor, over the last 15 years, I've seen that being a recurring theme. The things that we choose to do, the hobbies that we take on, what message does that preach to our children? 
What things we do, how are, how are we living this way? How are we passing that next thing on? Jesus says it this way in Matthew, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Verse 17, behold, the Lord will hunt you away violently. Oh, excuse me, hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man. I think there's a bit of sarcasm here. So the Lord God will hurl you away violently, oh, you strong man. It's a little condescending too, yeah? Yeah? He's talking trash, right? It's, it's, it, the, you know, they're, in, they're both in the cage and the bell hasn't gone off. They're talking, God's winning, but he's talking trash for sure, right? <laughs> he will see his firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots. You shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. I'm gonna hurl you like a ball, little man. That's what he says. <laughs> right? Because you're placing everything here. Let me show you that how much greater it should be. You should be using your position for influence to glorify God. Instead, you're using your position of influence to glorify yourself. Well, because of that, I'm going to utterly mock you. And I'm going to throw you like a rock, and you're going to die in a desert. He goes on, verse 22, and I will place on his, oh, oops, verse 20, my bad. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I'm going to take all those things that you, you worked really hard to get, that you like, and I'm going to give them to another man. And I'm going to give him your authority. I'm going to give him your position. I'm going to give him your robe. I'm going to give him everything you've tried to achieve so hard because I'm going to strip it from you. Verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Now, in Eliakim, what Isaiah is doing is also advancing the story to Jesus. You see, I will take and I will bring someone and I will lay a robe on him. And I will give all my authority to him. And what he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. Sound a lot like Jesus' conversation with Peter? He's advancing the story. Yes, Eliakim is going to come in and take Shebna's place. But Isaiah never misses a great opportunity to tell everybody about Jesus. And he just points down history, seven centuries, eight centuries to Jesus coming and ultimately being the authority. So listen to this. He says this, verse 23, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang him, hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. So that's true of Eliakim, also true of Jesus, right? So speaking of two people, a lot of times, I said this earlier, a lot of things that are prophetic, things that are future telling, that are not just truth to people then, a lot of the things that look down the road of life and history, a lot of them have immediate fulfillments and then they have a messianic or a messiah's fulfillment in Christ. And Hilkiah is a type of Christ to come, one who is faithful to the master's house, one who is faithful to the father. And says, I will fasten him like a peg, 
right? Like something that is driven in that you can, that you can grab hold of and you can hang on to. So here's how he finishes it. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg was fastened and a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Not only will the people of God be cut off, but it also speaks of Christ's death for us. So this narrative that God is speaking through Isaiah is this, is that I have provided a means of grace to you. I have provided a way to return. I've laid this out in front of you and I've taken my hand away from you so you'd know, so that you'd know that you need to return. And then I've laid out a clear path for you to return. Now, really, not to confuse that with the other one, but now kind of the ball's in your court, right? Now it's up to you. Do you continue in arrogance and pride? Or do you return in humility? Do you continue to celebrate and eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Or do you humble yourself and mourn and fast and pray and return? And he gives this image of the proud. and says, you think you've got it all together. I will throw you like a ball. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are the way back. In you, Christ, is all we need. It is grace. It is mercy. It is forgiveness. It is healing and redemption. Jesus, you are, you are the path. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, you are it. And sometimes we try and go on our own way. Often we try and go our own way. And Jesus, we just need to humble ourselves before you. That image of that man being thrown is just such a huge image for us to, to look at ourselves and think, where are the places that we, we try and stand on our own, try and stand on our own two feet, try and, try and live this life in our own strength rather than being humbled and submitted to you and living in your strength, living in your grace. Jesus, I pray as we move into worship and response, I pray that we would reflect in our hearts, that we would ask you, where is it that we do this? Maybe something is already immediate in our mind. Maybe we have to be kind of like David, the psalmist, who said, search me, God, and know me, and show me if there's unclean things in me. Wherever we are, God, I pray that we would take those things that you reveal to us and that we would leave them here. As we move into communion, Jesus, we have this opportunity to lay down our sin at your feet. As we take the bread and we we dip it in the cup, we remember your death, the peg sheared off for us that will ultimately return and be our eternal king. Jesus, let us leave here different than when we came in. Let us leave here drawn nearer to you I thank you for this church. I thank you for the things that we get to celebrate, the highs and the lows of church, whether it be attendance or giving or baptism, all those things, just that we get to celebrate what you're doing, that we get to anticipate you doing more. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.